Here we are. There are, there are no mistakes. There's just uh, spontaneous deviations from the expected, um, which happens all the time. Uh, so this is what we're in. And I hope you use your time wisely. You know, this is just a couple more, few more days in your life on this planet. Breathing in, breathing out. You're visiting this embodied condition for a while. <laughs> this is another episode in it that may cast some light into this experience, being embodied, sense consciousness, uh, and all that entails. And this is the world, the Buddha called it, <laughs> uh, in this very body with its perceptions and consciousness and feelings is the world. Mm. Mm. This is what we're in. Mm. Mm. And uh, I think we'll find that actually, most of us find that a challenging experience, individually, collectively. Um, you don't have to look around very far to find sources of crisis and distress. Any of these what we what we see arising in our consciousness, what we hear, what arises in our hearts, and it plays out in front of us, and it's the crisis of uh, ignorance. Um, and the fundamental forms is ignorance. You can look at this climate crisis. You can look at uh, the increasing divisiveness and rage in the society, and uh, catharsis and, and trauma and look at you can also look at the um, you know the states of societies and the inequality you know the racism the you know and digging up some of these um, uh, we're beginning to actually look more clearly at uh, the old views of history and looking some of its pretty pretty stark statement of human ignorance and foolishness and so we find this so uh, sometimes it's pretty overwhelming to me all that and uh, a lot of us in heart just sometimes you just want to shut down from that not, not to be too exposed to it or where we find refuge so in this period of time i'm going to say yeah there are many problems that we're probably not going to be able to unfold in this time. But um, the basic paradigm is finding, as the Buddha did, a sort of a still place within that from which actually rather beautiful things start to unfold. Generosity, sharing, morality, virtue, uh, courage, resilience loving-kindness, clarity, insight. And around these values, sort of, you know, communities forming and human interactions forming and uh, a kind of a, almost an alternative world forming that's kept what's called the Buddha Sasana. He's a dispensation of the Buddha and its benefits available through 2,500 years while most everything else in human society has crumbled and changed. You know, you, know, you look at 
United States, how old is that, 300 years maybe, as, as that society? Of course, America goes on much longer than that, but that particular social form, um, you know, British thing was an empire 150 years ago, that's all gone. Roman empires, Chinese empires, all these things just so massive and powerful, gone. Mm. And yet this uh, support and encouragement to bring forth the good, the true and the beautiful in the human form is available, still available, always has been available. It acts like a sacred platform that we can tune to because it's actually not caught up in time or culture or location. Mm. And so the Buddha teaches this, teaches the way to this, this mm, Dhamma, Dhamma realm, I'd say. Mm. I guess for many of us, we begin our practice thinking of you know, meditation or insight practice or something like that. But um, this wasn't the way the Buddha taught it, even his own son, he didn't teach him meditation for quite a while. He taught him not to um, refrain from lying. Uh, morality, he taught him. Didn't, they didn't get meditation until he was like, been, a, been, in the, been with his father for at least a decade, training, training in... in in virtue and in integrity and in, li- and in living properly and meditation arose out of that mm. I think this is important to, to recognise actually the, the Buddhist cultivation is a rather wide span and uh, mm, covers the eightfold path it covers everything mm. we're trying to do and, and it's actually, that's very important because one of the problems that we counter that, that defiles us is this sense of segmentation cutting off non-inclusivity and uh, so in this you see that um, one of the fundamental obvious very obvious problems is human beings see themselves as separate from the rest of the created world you know nature's out there and i'm here i'm not nature nature's out there i'm here it seems i'm separate from that how does that happen? You know, where does your food come from? Where does your air come from? Where does your water come from? How does your body grow? Where did it come from? It, you know, this body belongs to the earth. You know, we're not separate from it. Human beings are not separate from it, and we're finding that to our cost because that that sneaky notion has led to the domination and exploitation of nature, isn't it? I'm separate from it. Therefore, I can own it, another strange notion that is unexamined. Hmm? I can own something. What does owning mean? What do we mean own something? And so indigenous or pre-mechanistic cultures say they didn't understand what they meant by owning things. You can't own animals, you can't own land because you didn't make them. You know, how can you own them? Uh, yeah, this is a very fundamental idea. I'm separate from it, therefore I can own it. Therefore, I can also control it, dominate it, exploit it, 
and then I can discard it when I'm finished with it. And this fundamental psychology, which most of our uh, society operates on that level. You buy something, that means you own it, you do what you want with it, and then you throw it somewhere called away. Now, we know, really, there's no away. It's just out of my sight. There's no away, and we're finding that out. This is why the world is choked with pollution, isn't it? This sense of away. So we're separate, and that can come out, isolate us from responsibility and integration. I don't think people have the idea, oh, I'll, I'll throw this trash away so it will pollute the planet and kill creatures. No, they're just away. <laughs> you know, even though there isn't any away. Oh, oh yeah, I suppose. All oh, right. Oh, just put it in, in the trash somewhere. Away, away is a gesture of the mind, meaning I take no responsibility. Ownership is a gesture of the mind, saying, "I, you know, I claim, I, I have." They, they don't stand up to reality, and yet this sense of separation, ownership, exploitation, domination, is a fundamental pattern in the world. And of course, we do it to creation, creating world. And uh, once that takes over, a little bit of tweaking, you do it. Tweak, the people do it to each other, to other people. Yeah, I mean, slavery one one exa- obvious example of ownership. Um, but even on a subtler level, you know, you, know you, you belong to a country, you belong to a nation, you belong to. It doesn't mean you actually you're owned by it. <laughs> And yeah, you know, and you can own you can own a piece of territory in it. So we sort of participate in this, in this this kind of ongoing thing. And then we feel we own the body. You know, so your body is something you can have, and then once you have it, then you can get worried about losing it. And we don't really appreciate it or feel a gratitude or responsiveness to it. We just use it and uh, so on and of course this goes down to even personal relationships where people own each other mm. in some sort of emotional way mm. this is well, yeah, this is this is this is a it's a virus isn't it when you see what do those terms mean what do they hold up to you get to examine these things in meditation because you even can't even own your own mind. You know, what you call your mind, did you create it? Can you say, let there be no thought in this one? Let this one be exactly how I want it to be. Let it not have anything that comes from anybody else within it. No, in most of the mind, most of your mental content is about other people, events, sense contact, thoughts, language, attitudes that, that is just taken on. And uh, it has no real boundary. So ownership, and we begin to check it out. As long as we have that sense, then we're trying to make it into something that will fit me, that will fit my wishes. 
you realize in meditation this is one of the big you know things you've got to get over in meditation to enter in a more healthy relationship with mental content which is more about what you what you give energy to and what you withdraw energy from and how you generate compassion and kindness and spaciousness over the, the field of, of the mind mm. and how you can do that mm. from an unbiased place which in meditation we can find is this quiet center mm. which we'll come back to and sometimes people call it the Buddha knowing or pure awareness or these are terms that, that used to refer to this this center and it's always the buddha arises within the world not somewhere else he rises within the world and surveys the world with a mind unrestricted by defilement unrestricted by perceptions and biases unrestricted by preferences and wishes and with a mind with a heart imbued with compassion and kindness and we say this this world is not just planet earth it's all of it and then the buddha through that action is generating or gives rise to sacred energies sacred forces sacred qualities that then have as strong a reality as as the confused ones generosity sharing for example whatever morality respect mutual respect loving kindness is a tremendous um, orientation principle where we feel happier with ourselves and with each other Mm. so this perception that we're somehow separate from nature separate from each other other people how can you be as a human being how you can you be separate from other people you know uh, did didn't you didn't you get born from somebody else's body you know it took at least quite a few people to get you actually up and running in this thing <laughs> where was the separation then where did you learn your language from the sky or other people where did you learn your behaviors from good and bad mm. where did you get your food from people where did you get your learning from where did you get your friendship from mm. Mm. what do you want to do with your life is it about bringing something for the welfare of others isn't that what it's about even when you die, it takes a few people to dispose of your body. So we're we're essentially we are a meeting point of all kinds of relational qualities. Could those relational qualities be indu- imbued with true dhamma? Mm. So our experience is a mandala of sharing and communion. Isn't that what so many people? find themselves missing in their lives, the sense of community. It's not just um, a faith, passion, it's a necessity. 
non separate. And when you look at some of the um, wisdoms of these um, uh, pre-mechanistic people, and it's quite an, it's quite a significant change that occurred for human beings, mechanistic age development. Before that, you know, there's sort of, you know, people belong, tribal, social, sharing. I'm reading an account of, uh, I think it was East African tribe, and somebody was, anthropologist was going, saying, well, how do you, you know, it's, oh, we have to give, we have to give, we have to share. Somebody comes along who's poor, it's a disgrace to us all, we must, we must share, we must give to him or her if they arrive, we must. I said, what happens if you don't? And horror, shock. Is this a... No, it's impossible. No, you have to, you have to. What happens if you don't? Oh, you know, you'll die alone under a tree. <laughs> you'll be alone. The worst thing that could ever happen to you. It's a kind of death of the spirit. Because we live each other, just like we breathe the air. You know, we live each other. Just like we have to breathe air in, we have to take people in. Their energies, their their humour, their joy, their sorrow, their love. You have to take them in. Otherwise, you're not you're not a human being. You're a ghost. You're not really here. And but this becomes more possible. You know to be in your little box, isolated, and to not feel connected and belonging. You look at Buddha Dharma, one of the most fundamental things he generated in his life was called the fourfold assembly. And he said, I'm not passing away. When he was confronted by the Lord of Death, who was saying, oh, you know, you're 80 years old, your body's in pain, you keep going, you've done a lot of teaching, it's time to, you know, pass on. He says, no, I'm not passing on until the fourfold assembly is there. He says, well, now I see they're present. There are the lay men, the lay women in white. You know, take the eight precepts, or take the five precepts and live in that way. There are the, the nuns and the monks. Their fourfold assembly is present. We have a society. Now, I think my work is done. Not through teaching one sutta, but through establishing a community, not just the monastic community, but an interrelated community that would feed, support, question, admonish, correct, enjoy each other. Mm. Sacred society. Mm. Now, of course, we can get very idealistic about that. Well, he's not very sacred, but, you know, but, you know it's like the, the, the underpinnings are sacred. And, of course, people have their flaws and defects. But the fundamental sense is, is the connectedness means you don't give up on people. You don't throw people out. You keep them included. And... You take bear patience with them, and you take them in, and you practice with them, and you sacri- you give yourself to them. 
you know, you give up some of your own time, some of your own energy. The good friend is said to be someone who gives what's hard to give and does what's hard to do for your sake, endures your harsh words, bears with you when you're a bit nasty to them. Yeah. And uh, when you're down, doesn't give up on you. When you completely blow it all together, doesn't turn you away. This is very. This is kind of bedrock stuff to be cultivated. We're not separate. And yet, that myth of the individual remains a very potent myth in the, um, say, mechanistic developed world. The ideal, in some respects, is to be an independent individual who's got everything she needs, can do what she wants, not beholden to anybody, you know, resilient, reliable, strong, male or female, whatever, doing their thing. You know, it's a very individualistic um, vision and it loses from out. Winners, you've got to be a winner, losers, from out. Yeah. That model. So this brings up another feature, which is um, superiority, supremacy, who is the supreme. And so, first of all, you know, human beings are supreme, superior to worms, obviously. Why? If, if all the worms left the planet, we'd be dead. This planet would collapse. If all human beings left this planet, the planet would be fine. What's so, what's so good about you? <laughs> Why are you superior to a worm or a bee? You know, the bees die out in deep trouble. You know, because the flowers, the fruit, the pollination, not just us, but everything collapses. If we die out, I don't think a single creature would be concerned. <laughs> well, so can you do what a bee does? Can you do what a worm does? Yeah. Do you have the intelligence of a wolf or a whale or a dolphin? They're different intelligences. Yeah, we've got some smarts. Human beings are pretty smart. Human intelligence is one of the beautiful, possibly one of the beautiful presentations of intelligences there are, and they're all they're all supreme in their own. There's the supreme beetle. <laughs> this is the latest model. This is the latest model of worm. <laughs> and so everything is its leading edge at this time. Everything's growing. We're in an efflorescent, growing, spreading, widening cosmos, universe. That's what it's doing, isn't it? So why do we need to be supreme? Why can't we just enjoy the richness and cooperate? It's the same model, essentially. Same thing. If I'm supreme, then I've got rights over other things. And other things, get rid of them, get in my way. Supreme things have got to be shaped according to the human intelligence, 
and the human wishes. So now we have a situation where I think it's something like of all land mammals, 96% of them belong to us. Cattle, cats, dogs, pigs, sheep. 4% of mammals are wild. And they're like in, you know, maybe a few thousand here. Some of them down to the hundreds. So even the creatures, mammals that survive are mostly accessories to us. And once we own them, we can do some pretty shocking things to them. You've got the right to. And I wonder where this word rights came from. It's one of those, you know, galvanizing terms, isn't it? It's my right. When, what does that feel like? What does that feel like? They might say, reframing it, my responsibility. And certainly the emphasis in Dhamma practice is my responsibility within community, the matrix, the life forms, my responsibility. Mm. And my practice is to find that and feel strong in that and to be committed to that. Then I get a sense of strength, authenticity, and non-comparison. I'm not worse or better than any others. You know, if I want to fix the plumbing, I'm useless. You know, I maybe look pretty good in a Buddhist meditation setting. Plumbing, I'm pathetic. <laughs> Dentistry, not got it at all. Yeah. So, <laughs> why compare? Why not just, what does that do? We look down upon, or we feel intimidated by, or we feel competitive, I've got to be better than. How good does any of this feel? So, you know, what other creature says they have a right? The elephants say I have a right to this amount of territory. Mm. Does a snake say it's my right to be here? We create a theology to back us up, <laughs> basically. God gave it to us. Where, where did he go? Can I have a word? <laughs> we created theology to back it up. But if we don't create anything, maybe there is a God, I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm not saying there isn't, but I didn't, I didn't get any sense of like one day this God came and said, here, you've got the rights. I didn't get that personally. Maybe, maybe there is a God, I don't know. But I think if he did, he created the whole whole shoot match, everything out here. He didn't say, you know, created the same as every, every other creature, needing to feed, needing to eat, fearing death, wanting shelter. Basically the same deal as every other creature got. So where did the rights come from? <laughs> that fundamental paradigm of the divided, divided awareness. 
So we recognize that, and the Buddha teaches an undivided awareness. Not just because he's being altruistic, but because it makes us feel better. It brings around the ending of our stress. Because that division and the comparisons and so forth, that occurs internally. So internally we compare ourselves with other people. And internally also compare ourselves with another kind of theology, um, my idea of what I should be. Mm -hmm. And it's never what I am. You can't have what I am, can't be what I should be. Mm. So that sense of comparing and also a divided relationship, a divisive response or an incomplete, ineffectual relationship with energies, with fear, with anger, with joy, with passion, with, with insecurity, with, you know, aging sickness, death, which frightens us dreadfully. With not getting what I want which makes you feel very upset. So the inability to, to open to form a, a, like a, an effectual relationship with what happens and recognizing after a while that most of the distress happens because I've formed an ineffectual relationship. That's where the frustration came from because I had expectations. My desires, craving, resistances. That's where the fear came from. And if so we seeing it for my welfare and for the welfare of others and for the welfare of all beings, we've got to ease out of that dividedness. This is sacred practice. As I said earlier, Buddha saying that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world, that is called the world. The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body and the mind. Various forms of differentiated consciousness generate the world of differentiation. So we take consciousness or differentiated consciousness, six forms of consciousness, right? Body, sight, touch, hearing, tasting, smelling, all the thing. Six forms of consciousness. Yeah. And um, they're all very different. They present a different different reality. You know, you, looking at something is nothing like tasting it. Tasting an apple is nothing like touching it. A completely different experience. But then what creates that unified form 
is the mind consciousness, that which perceives and conceives. So we conceive and perceive an apple on a, a variety of sense inputs. And in doing so, consciousness also sets up, I am the perceiver, I am the conceiver of that thing. I'm the one who sees the apple. I'm the one who buys the apple. I'm the one who eats the apple. And this is the fundamental setup of the divided world through sense consciousness. In seeing something, there arises the sense of being someone who sees it. Right? And that that one who sees it feels in some kind of um, relationship with that which is seen. Seer sees the object. They want it. They don't want it. They like it. They dislike it. So these energies start moving around across that, between that, that in that divide. The object apple or the person or the cow is an object in my mind. I see the person. She is now an object in my mind. I like her, I dislike her, I compare her with something else. I decide whether I want to associate with her or ignore her or whether I have an opinion about her or despise her or think she's fantastic. So, right? So I've conceived her. So far, I haven't actually opened up to her at all. Mm-hmm. Most important feature of that is my perceptions, opinions, conceiving of that object. That gives rise to a strong feeling of of um, independence and also um, control. You know, now I know where I am. I know what she is. I know I got this view and opinion. So it very much forms and informs the sense of this separated individual who starts to have thoughts about this person who's an object in their mind. And this is so going on. And they can have a lot of thoughts and ideas about that person. And the more they have, the more intelligent and informed uh, they feel. Imagine seeing someone not having an idea or an opinion. Kind of a bit bare, isn't it? And maybe one feels slightly insecure because at that point where I don't have an opinion or a view or an attitude or wishing to compare her or wishing to own her or push her away or tell her to do something or whatever, I just don't have anything going, what happens as an openness? And in that openness, what is revealed is any latent insecurities, energies, frustrations have to be seen for what they are. This is a good exercise to see someone and drop all the assumptions. And what you'll find, if you can stay with that, 
as you settle, particularly settling into your own embodiment, the quality of empathy occurs. Love. Not passion, but sympathy. It occurs as a natural feature of the individual who's put down or relaxed their self-creations, their formative tendencies, relaxes, sense just empathy and relatedness. You don't, don't have to know the person, but just to put that, all that object forming on hold, Instead of creating a world, because when we create a world, and this is just one example of it, you know, she's this, she's going to be that, and I know she's not like this, I feel like oh, well, I want to be with her. There's a, there's a kind of micro element of, of a world there. What happens in that is fears, desires, uncertainties start forming. Opinions and views start forming. And then what I should be, so she'll be okay with me, she'll do what I want her to do, always starts forming. Uh, she'll see me in a positive light, so this starts forming. And I'm frightened she might see the bad side of me, so this starts forming. And I'm jealous because this starts forming. And I even feel maybe she's looking down on me, it starts forming. She doesn't want to see me, this starts forming. You know, or she reminds me of so-and-so, so-and-so, and that starts forming. All that forms in this world is dukkha. Unsatisfactory, subject to stress, prone to defilement, and a fantasy. And not necessary. The dropping of that openness, stability, I'm not, I don't have to define myself in terms of that presence. I don't have to define her or him. When he's defining the world ceases, something more beautiful arises. Just to use that as an example, because the most potent element in our world is other people. When we really look at our world-forming tendencies and um, you can look at it in, I sometimes use it four ways. The material world that I call out there which is plants, trees, buildings, rocks, cars, and so forth. Material world out there. When I say I'm not, I'm separate from it, I can use it. Material world here, which I call my body, that's a pretty potent experience too. World out there, I got all kinds of ideas of what I'm going to do with it, and how I'm going to travel around in it, and, you know, there's and the world here, this physical, this materiality here, very potent experience too. 
I'm worried about its appearance, its health, its pains, its, its transience. I feel like a target to other people. Other people can see it. Yeah. So this very another potent aspect of my world. I spend can spend a lot of time, you know, focusing on and uncertain about and trying to make good. And then we have the immaterial. What is my mind? What I call my mind. Very potent area. With me night and day. Impinging. Night and day. Nattering. Worrying. Infuriating. Uncertain. Needing. Rejoicing. Cheering. Concern, it's not doing enough. <laughs> Guilty. This. And uh, there is, is the, the world of the media, or you could say the collective consciousness, the views, the opinions, the, the zeitgeist, the social trends that are sweeping across, that I hear from other human beings, the corporate mind, the corporate voice, the corporate psychologies, the attitudes and tendencies that I'm noticing knit the human world together. Very, very potent topic. So these four constituted out of seeing, hearing and so forth, along with the mind as the weaver. And it weaves these fourfold fourfold um, constituents are very volatile um, and the Buddha teaches or exemplifies presents a way to be with all of these to respect and be aware of and uh, practice with all of these. And that practice with all of these, with this world, takes us out of the worldly dividedness into something more compassionate, more deep, less isolated. This very body we see is actually just the latest, one of the latest outcrops of the human, ongoing human gene code, you know. So it passes away, but doesn't mean that embodiment passes away. It's when I take it as a separate entity, is a problem. This very mind, you know, it's got all kinds of stuff moves through it. Some of it's enjoyable, some of it's profound, some of it's virtuous, some of it's shady. That all changes, and yet there is the open door of the mind. Do we recognize that? That is available. This phenomenal world I see around me, full of forms, creative forms, changing, shift, shifting around. Do we ever recognize just the, the vibrant creativity that we dwell in, that we are honoured to be part of, to just uh, 
and the human collective consciousness what's it like when you're in harmony when there are people speaking truth a group of people speaking truth a group of people honoring truth honoring peace honoring love honoring you know morality what's the power of that where will be without that voice and how that voice has come to us and how it can permeate all these cultures so these are the four elements you might say that i'd like to look at review over this next few days and i hope you can enjoy that participate with it these um online zoom sessions there are occasions is it a retreat or is it not a retreat it's kind of up to you you know you're living your life so what do you do when the talk given you keep living your life <laughs> but maybe maybe what the some of the talks have said what the readings have said is continuing in your life it's not like it's stopped there's no bell that says it's the end of it you know these are just thoughts and forms and energies and moods shifting through you so when the screen goes quiet process continues and then you have the opportunity to actually moderate it and decide which way you want to go with that it's, it's an opportunity for inquiry um, in which one myself primarily will be presenting possibilities and looking into the teachings of the buddha you can contemplate but eventually it's your it's your time isn't it and if your time that you're freely offering is meeting the time that's freely offered and shared with other people there's a sense of community that occurs even if it's rather strange online situation you can be experienced even though the forms are separate we're of one mind we're of one mind and that nothing can confirm your truth better than the community presence of others so please make use of it <laughs>